Hello and welcome to the Create Magic Podcast. This is the Creative Weirdo segment where I talk to all kinds of creative and wonderful friends, new and old, and today... I am just so grateful to have back Mitch Horowitz for another conversation. Uh, Mitch is a wonderful writer, thinker, historian, and uh, all around just great person to talk to when you want to have a refresh as far as a look on the world. And his new book, Modern Occultism, is that in paper form. It is this beautiful look at all the different things and people and ideas that make up what we know today as occultism. And we get to talk about that and a ton of other stuff via the lens of this new beautiful book that Mitch wrote. So please check the links below, go pre-order his book and grab any of the other ones. Mitch's work has been very meaningful in my life and I'm just beyond grateful to have the opportunity to connect with people and have uh, people like Mitch in my life. So thank you for helping with that opportunity. And I hope you all get as much out of this conversation as I do. The The first conversation with Mitch was one of the uh, most responded to I've ever made. And it, made, it means a lot to me that these conversations that kind of change not only my day, but my outlook on life in general can uh, do the same for y'all. So without further ado, here's the conversation. Again, go check out Mitch's new book and everything else and have a wonderful day. Talk to you soon. Bye. sending over an advanced copy of the book and writing this book. It's absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much. It means a lot to me. Um, working on this book was one of the most meaningful projects of my career. And so uh, you're among the first readers. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> that really means a lot. And you can tell, like, uh, there's some things that I, I've never written down questions for guests really before, but I have some uh -huh. specific ones that came to mind when reading this that I'm so excited to ask you about. But before diving into specifics, you mind just giving a little overview of what uh, modern occultism is and what, what we're talking about here? Sure. Modern occultism is a history of the occult, literally from Cleopatra through the present day. And uh, I, I really wanted to ask myself, what are the roots of what we refer to as occultism in the present day? And, of course, it can't meaningfully just be anything and everything that's novel or unusual in spiritual life. It can't just be anything that's weird on the, on the cultural scene uh, in order for that word to really mean something. And the truth is, you know, the word does mean something and it does have historical integrity. It was coined during the Renaissance from the Latin term occultus, meaning hidden or secret, and it referred very specifically to antique spiritualities that emerged from Greece, Rome, Egypt, Persia, North Africa, that were dominant in what we would consider the Western world and, and were suppressed, squelched, subject to banishment, uh, during the rise of uh, Christianity and then the later in antiquity, late antiquity, during the rise of Islam. And so there's a rupture in our spiritual past as Westerners. Uh, uh, other nations and people don't necessarily have that experience. You have, for example, within the Far East, religious traditions, um, including Taoism, animism, Confucianism, shamanism, um, and in, in India and, and uh, surrounding nations, uh, Vedas and Buddhism, that have continued as uninterrupted traditions, in some cases for literally millennia. But our religious experience in the West is schismatic, and what got left behind, so to speak, is what we call the occult. So I wanted to ask where that came from and how our current conceptions of it, whether it be ceremonial magic, chaos magic, astrology, divination, Satanism, all kinds of different philosophies, outlooks, and outsider spiritual cultures and modalities, 
where did our conceptions come from? And these conceptions usually date back to very late antiquity when stuff started getting written down, at least started getting written down in languages like Greek, uh, Arabic, Latin, to which we modern Westerners have some access. So that's where the story begins, and and it comes up to the present. And it's a it's an effort that <laughs> encompasses vast sweeps of history, but I try to really find the family tree of ideas, figures, concepts, movements that unite that family tree, because there is unification as well. Yeah, that's beautiful. That, that I, Such a good summary of uh, what you put down to paper. And I think before I go into some of the specifics I wanted to ask you about the book, there's something you brought up that is really been on my mind since reading it and that is that suppression of the spiritual or the esoteric that yeah. the western culture has i don't want to say fallen victim to but has uh, seemed to come about and how much different and how important that point is in today's society with how different cultures interact with a lot of buzzwords right now um ai is a great one i have a really mm-hmm. good friend uh fred anderson who lives in sweden oh sure and works. yeah you know fred yeah he's, he's I, I know him through social media and i admire everything he posts and i dig yes him. He's. Uh, we actually <laughs> talked about you when I interviewed him a little bit ago because both of us have done some of your uh, thought experiments to very you know beneficial uh, ends in our lives. So thank you. I didn't oh, even I think about it. that connection. But um, I was talking to Fred on the podcast about AI and things, and you know he was a TV producer at the time for a paranormal huh? show, and he's like, no one's freaking out about this over here because a lot <laughs> of it is tied to commerce and tied to the way that you guys run. Cap, you know, the way capitalism runs, we don't have a social net. He's like, if we all lose our jobs, we have a safety net that we can fall back on. So no one's really talking about AI around here in the way that it's being talked about in the West. And I think that's like a very good parallel of how those keeping the weird or the occult or those things in the culture allows us to interact with these new novel things that are popping up better or different cultures to interact with those things in a a more healthy or well-balanced way, I guess. And that's a super interesting point that you brought up that I would just love to hear. If you have anything, if any experience from researching this, like how people and different cultures have interacted with these weird and novel events, depending on their cultural views of things like the esoteric and the occult. Well, it, it's funny, if one looks at the ascension of Christianity and the decline of the ancient nature-based religions, uh, the polytheistic traditions, um, the mystery religions, it's, it's, not, it's not a story of good guys versus bad guys. And I always try to catch myself before I slip into that narrative, because it's very easy to get into a kind of flag-waving mentality as though to say that, you know, all the things that I'm very distantly attached to were somehow good and Buddha Christianity or other things that uh, upended the order of things. You know, it's not really that way at all. Um, first of all, the, the esoteric traditions, as I've referenced some of them, they had been in existence for millennia. Uh, There was corruption, there was degradation. Um, It was profoundly exciting to people that um, the Christian religion promoted the idea of a kind of personal relationship with one monotheistic uh, creator. It seemed empowering, it seemed redemptive, it freed people from the hierarchies that had long calcified within the pagan faiths, although there were anarchistic parts of the pagan faiths, such as the worship of uh, local deities, village deities, household gods, and so forth. It wasn't as if all of it was this top-down hierarchy, but there was plenty of that. And to many people, Christianity provided an off-ramp from that. There were also power uh, uh, dynamics at work. Christianity had been persecuted itself under the old order in Rome and when the Emperor Constantine kind of sort of converted to a version of Christianity, which he still continued to combine with with sun worship and Jupiter worship and some of the older ways. It wasn't as if there was this curtain of demarcation that just fell. But regardless, Constantine's conversion effectively made Christianity into the state faith of Rome. and, And at that point, 
um, the early church was able to squelch the remaining pagan religions, what we might call a cult today, uh, in the same way that the pagan religions would have done to Christianity had they been ascendant. So it's not as if human nature somehow uh, in all of its good parts or in all of its bad parts is exclusive property of one cultural tendency or another. And I would say that remains true today. How could it not be true? Although at the same time, once occultism was what we call occultism today was suppressed, um, the suppression was brutal and it was complete. And so everything that had shaped the regions of the world that might loosely be referred to as the West today was substituted for something else, a dramatically a different religious and ethical outlook that nonetheless incorporated some of the old ways, but was a rupture with them. And that's why occult and esoteric spirituality remains a perpetually outsider spirituality to this day. It was reborn during the Renaissance, but then squelched again for various reasons. There were backlashes. And by the time you start to wind down the 1600s, um, occultism as a, a multivaried philosophy is present nowhere within respectable life. You can still find it, of course, within royal courts and academies, but it's on the hush-hush. It's on the low down. It's represented by flamboyant or dynamic or slightly um, suspect figures, uh, <laughs> but it's not, it's not an official part of state ceremony or sanctioned faith. So the occult more or less disappears from public life in significant ways until an occult revival begins in the mid-19th century through the work of Eliphas Levi and uh, his, his books on, well, his, his primary book, uh, which is now called Doctrine and Ritual of High Magic. It was originally published in two parts starting in 1854, but Levi really reintroduced occult themes into artistic, cultural, and spiritual life. And from there, about a generation later, Madame H.P. Blavatsky kind of closed the circle, and through her efforts, there was a full-fledged occult revival. But it was found among artists, outsiders, intellectuals, malcontents. Uh, it wasn't a culturally sanctioned revival so much as a counterculture. And, and so it remains today in the 21st century. Uh, occultism is so widely varying. I earlier mentioned some of its expressions, but it, it will remain an outsider philosophy. The measure of our success as a, as a society is the extent to which people are able to explore that outsider philosophy without persecution. And that's going to change from region to region, from time to time, from place to place. It should never be taken for granted, even by people like me who live in New York City, which is considered this anything-goes place. Well, you know, uh, 60 miles or so outside of New York City in the Hudson Valley town of Poughkeepsie uh, in 2021, a homicidal arson was attempted against two members of the Church of Satan who lived in an antique Victorian home in the town of Poughkeepsie. And the home was burned down by a guy who was dressed in a hazmat suit and his face was concealed. We know this because the owners of the home had security footage. He still hasn't been caught. There were two people sleeping in the house who just escaped alive with literally the clothes on their back and the house is gone. And this was... Uh, th this could have gone a much different way. And so this was in 2021, 60 miles outside of New York. So when I speak of, when I speak of the question of whether those of us who are interested in the occult can pursue it without a persecution, it sounds almost quaint, uh, but it's not, unfortunately. It's a real live burning question. Now, most of the time, everything is fine. I expect you, you and I will wrap today and, you know, we'll go get our coffee and, you know, we'll go deal with our kids and we'll go about life and everything will be fine most of the time. 
but one can't overlook this. Now, in the nations of the Middle East, for example, uh, Freemasonry largely is against the law. You can't form a Freemasonic Lodge in most of the nations of the Middle East. Um, you, you know, never mind, you know, I'm not even getting into the human rights situation in places like uh, Russia, China, Saudi, Saudi Arabia, obviously part of the Middle East. In Saudi Arabia, um, you know, I mean, there was a man um, <clears throat> from Jordan who was recently uh, freed. I write about him um, elsewhere. And um, he was uh, the host of um, a, um, I beg your pardon, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't Jordan, it was Lebanon. In Lebanon, he was the host of a, I guess what you'd call like a new age talk show. And he would cast love spells for people. And um, uh, Hussein Ali Sabat is his name. And anyway, uh, he visited uh, Saudi on a pilgrimage. And he was arrested by the religious police and he was sentenced to death by beheading. Uh, thanks to the efforts of Amnesty International and um, his lawyer in, uh, in Lebanon, with whom I was in touch for a while, and some behind-the-scenes politicking, uh, he was freed. But this was ghastly. And so when I talk, and again, this was recent. I mean, this is 21st century stuff. So most of the time, everything's going to be okay um, until it's not. And so I'm always cautioning people against getting too comfortable. You know, we mustn't use historical language because those of us who live in North America, most of the time we go about our business and nobody bothers us, by and large. Um, but uh, it's a precarious thread and it should never be taken for granted. So commitment to an outsider ideology um, shouldn't, shouldn't be taken uh, in so light a fashion that the individual feels that um, we're well past the age where we have to be concerned about um, such disruptions. Yeah, that's a great point and one that I don't think is made very often. And it kind of, before you got to that end point, I was thinking about how I wanted to ask you about the idea that it seems like there's this middle path that to me resonates the most true, where it is not not that we need to bring back everything we left behind in materialism and not that we right. need to, not that we need to get rid of materialism, that we need to take both more seriously, that the things like the imagination and the occult need to be taken more seriously in our society, not that we need to go back to where the situations that uh, you just described become exactly. more prevalent and things. And, and I, I think that's a beautiful point that you just made. And I, I think uh, it's one that shouldn't be taken lightly for sure, because that is something that doesn't get talked about when people are kind of looking at cultural comparatives. That's uh, very apt. Yeah. I don't apt. want to nostalgize <laughs> the past. <laughs> there was no good old days for the human race. No, yes, you know what yes, I mean? so no. We always come up with ways of killing each other under whatever circumstances life presents us. But uh, so I'm not going to nostalgize uh, the past or anything remotely like it. Uh, so much as just to say that even in societies where we are well accustomed to freedom of search, and that's something that should be applauded and embraced yeah. and strengthened, uh, we can't sleep too soundly at night. Absolutely. And something that a lot of the people you cover in the book were not afforded. And a lot of these people that, and it's interesting when you were talking about how this is a fringe movement and it always has been how big of impacts those fringes have on the whole. Like it's always interesting oh, to totally, me yeah. how like yeah. those, those hidden things are the ones that actually make the big movements. But one of the first things I really wanted to ask you about the book that really stood out to me is this. I, <laughs> I always think I never know how to ask the question, this idea about ideas, how important ideas are. And it seems like this is a book that almost asked the question or to me, the question kept coming out. Do we have like ideas are not localized? I think we can both agree on to to the human. But one of the questions that I always have is, do we have the ideas or do the ideas have us? Like it seems like the people that have these big impacts throughout the occult history are meant to have these very, uh, very big thoughts or these very, very big, uh, you know, 
ways of that they're going to impact culture. And it seems like it's a right place and right time thing as much as it is like that person just tapped into something. And I always kind of am curious and where people sit with that. If the ideas come to the people or if the people come to the ideas or if that's just a silly thing to ask. <laughs> no, it's it's a brilliant thing to ask. I mean, I mean these are these are questions that go to the nature of reality itself. What, what is life and how does an individual embark upon a certain path? Is it just purely accidental? Uh, I look at a figure like Madame H.P. Blavatsky, for example, who I write about quite a bit in the book, and it's unavoidable writing about Madame Blavatsky because once you begin to peel away the onion of what we call the occult in the modern world, her fingerprints just appear everywhere, even places that I thought they would not be found, such as in the modern revival of witchcraft, for example. Well, Madame Blavatsky's uh, protege and successor, Annie Besant, had a daughter named Mabel, and Mabel became one of the figures who came into contact with Gerald Gardner on the southern coast of England uh, in the post-war era, just as Gardner was formulating his own folkloric interests in a revived uh, witch cult, uh, so to speak, to use the, the language that he and some of his contemporaries used uh, in Britain and other parts of Western Europe. And so there, distantly, again, you find the fingerprints of Madame Blavatsky. And I'm constantly amazed at everything that she and Colonel Olcott, her compatriot and co-founding the Theosophical Society, accomplished. The woman died at age 59. I mean, she wasn't even around very long. And, um, and, and yet, if you look... Uh, at, at, at the depth and nature of her influence, it's just astonishing. Uh, if her influence were confined, let's say, to India alone, if she had never even visited the United States, in India alone, she and her compatriots uh, were very active in co-founding the Indian Independence Movement, the Indian National Congress. Um, Gandhi wrote and spoke very explicitly about his his debt to Madame Blavatsky, something that I also write about in the book. And mind you, it takes writing about because uh, most biographies of Gandhi, including by some very good people, completely write out Madame Blavatsky, either don't yeah. mention her or just force themselves as though under duress to make some errant reference to her. Whereas Gandhi himself in letters, articles, interviews, all on the record stuff, very clear, uh, sources that are that are standard historical reference points. Gandhi spoke about the depth of his debt to her and how she instigated his earliest instincts that there was a universal tie among different faiths, uh, his earliest instincts in the direction of a kind of human commonality and so forth. And you look at Madame Blavatsky, and of course, her career is pockmarked by all kinds of controversies and things that people find objectionable and sometimes justifiably so. But her influence on a man who very plainly could be considered the most successful uh, force in nonviolent democratic revolution in the 20th century, uh, a man who directly inspired Martin Luther King, her influence on him was so pronounced and this is just Tuesday, you know, this is just, Tuesday. <laughs> you know, I haven't even gotten yes, to what she did yes. on Wednesday, you know. Totally. And so if you, if you limited her career just to that role alone, she'd be notable. And yet it's like a many spoked wheel that goes off in all these different directions. So who was she? You know, was she just a motivating uh, actor who embodied the zeitgeist of that particular time? Um, we hear the expression "timing is everything," and it may be it may be that that expression, in its earliest form, actually goes back to the Tao Te Ching, the ancient Chinese uh, ethical work, where it certainly appears. So it may be that certain individuals just fill a role at a certain time. There may be a greatness to them. There may be a need for the role. It's very difficult to understand what the zeitgeist is, or even if there really is such a thing. Um, yeah. And, and, and yet, if we can speak about it, at least metaphorically, some people do capture it. And when they capture it, um, there's almost this momentum that seems to unfold at the back of their work 
without even so much as their effort. You know, Madame Blavatsky, of course, worked very hard. Her her literary output was was immense, but that was something she was going to do anyway. That was just the nature of who she was as a person. And the tide of uh, the times, or again, the zeitgeist, if there even is such a thing, lifted it. Um, that marriage of a person to an idea at a propitious moment where people, for whatever reason, are primed to hear it is extraordinary. And, and then, of course, there's the question of what role ideas play on a more mundane level in all of our lives. And one note that I would at least bring to the table is I think that one of the difficulties, one of the maladies of human nature is that we as individuals are capable of imbibing ideas, let's say an ethical idea or a therapeutic idea, but these ideas do not penetrate us. And that's a very strange aspect of human nature. For example, Everybody would nod in agreement with the statement that you shouldn't care what other people think about you. Yeah, right on. I agree with that. But, of course, we all care what other people think. Um, and so we're capable of recognizing the truth and the power of an idea without that idea penetrating. And that is a very important place for us to start searching into what the nature of our lives are and uh, who or what we are. Do you think that's where emotion comes in? Like as far as the ideas that do penetrate, do you think there's an emotional component to that? I was, I believe I was listening to you talk somewhere recently about how emotions are faster than ideas and thoughts. And a lot of times we react emotionally because we're emotional beings. The emotions happen quicker than, you know, our rational, logical brains catch up. And yes. one of the things, this might sound like a tangent, but one of the things I've thought about a lot since having kids is there's a trope or a stereotype that kids are more connected with, whether it's the paranormal or the magic, or they have these <laughs> more openness to experiences. And a lot of people say it's because they're not societally conditioned or all of those things that they're still like, they haven't been beaten down by the world yet and whatnot. And I think there's something to that. But one of the things I've really been thinking about since having young kids, I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old is the way they experience emotions is really important and special. Like the way that they go from experiencing these liminal states of uh, very strong emotions seems to be connected to that power of viewing the world in a more realistically uh, magical or wonderful way. Like my kid will pick up a rock and tell me this backstory that this rock is named George and it's lived for 500 years and all of this stuff. And I'm like, you're probably right. You're tapping into something that like I forget is probably a, a true thing. Like their natural animistic worldview, I think is kind of tied to the strong emotions or the way they experience strong emotions. And it, that always resonated with me when I hear people like you talk about how emotions are really the strong kind of transistor or this way to kind of um, transmogrify things, if that's a word or makes sense. <laughs> no, I dig. I, I definitely think we're ruled by emotions versus intellect. And uh, I agree very much with the observation, which was uh, something I discovered in the work of G.I. Gurdjieff, that emotions move vastly faster than intellect. Uh it's among the reasons why if we find ourselves facing an emotionally difficult situation, like we always think five minutes after the fact, I could have said this, I should have said that. Well, the, the individual shouldn't blame himself for that because that's just how we're built. Uh, emotions, maybe it's a survival mechanism. I have no idea. Emotions do move faster than intellect. And we are left at odds intellectually and, and our bodies ourselves are often running emotionally, sometimes physically. Look, if emotions and physicality weren't stronger than intellect, there'd be no addictions. <laughs> Somebody would say, you know, this has become a harmful, depleting habit. I've got to stop. I know why I have to stop. And then he or she would just stop. But of course, it doesn't happen that way because we're ruled by other things. So um, in that sense, I think that, that we are raised to think of ourselves as beings who respond to uh, logic and thought, and that unfortunately is, is is not the case. You know, if that were the case, um, then one work of ethical insight would be enough to change the world. You know, somebody could yeah. say, "Well, you know, I read the Tao Te Ching, or I read the Dhammapada, or I read the Bhagavad Gita, or I read the Beatitudes, and now I've got it all clear." And of course, people say that, and then they go off and they throw a brick through their neighbor's window. You know, in moments, and they feel 
perfectly justified in doing so. So we like to think we're beings of ideas, but unfortunately we're beings of um, much more than just that alone. And as far as kids go, um, I'm not sure, you know, I, look, um, I, I do know that there's a purity to children up till a certain age, because after a certain point, they begin imbibing peer pressure, and peer pressure is another force that shapes us tremendously. This is why I often encourage people to try to remember what they wanted at their earliest point of long-term cognition, even going back to like age three. What were their fantasies? What were their desires? And we had them, and they're there, and they're present. There's a tremendous intellectual life among, uh, with, among young children. Um, they're, they're remarkable beings and, and, and it can be very helpful to the individual to get down to basics by trying to really making an effort to remember what it was that he or she was about at that time, because that is before peer pressure engulfed us. Um, children are of course also very deeply, uh, impressionable. And, um, as a parent, you know, I would have mouthed lip service to the expression, uh, that you you teach through example. Sure, I agree, blah, blah, blah. But it took me much longer to really get to a place where I could honor that, uh, much, yeah. much longer. And even though I knew intellectually, it was true. As far as the nature of kids in general, I think I, I take a rather unsentimental view of it. Um, uh, the mythologist Joseph Campbell wrote The Young Live Mythically and in Depth. And I thought to myself, I don't know if Campbell had children or spent much time around <laughs> children, but the fact is, um, it seems to me that there's a sliver of the human community that's really sensitive. And I probably part ways with a lot of new age thinkers in this respect. Um, and, and that percentage is the same among children as it is among adults. I mean, there's a, there's a small percentage of people who have a fineness of emotions who are magnetically drawn to asking themselves questions about how to live, who have the nascent core of a search within them. And I think you find it in the same percentage among little kids as you find among adults. Um, if you encounter a little kid who has a beautiful sensitivity and emotions, well, that's a wonderful treasure. It should be nurtured. It should be um, valued. And likewise, I would say among adults. I think E.B. White, the writer, made the observation that there's within every town, every city, every place you go, there's a, a, a small, silent conspiracy of sensitive people. And they know one another when they meet with one another. They know one another when they encounter one another. And um, again, I, I think there's a, a relatively small number of people who possess a fineness of emotions. I don't sign on to this notion that um, everyone's a genius in potential, everyone's magical in potential, everyone is an expression of divine creation and potential. Um, I, I have never seen evidence of that. Of course, one could blame conditioning and say, we all get fucked out of our birthright of sensitivity and intelligence and insightfulness but I see lots of people who are deeply sensitive, lovely people who grew up in counter circumstances. And uh, I see people who grew up in circumstances of gentleness and love who were just real assholes in terms of how they <laughs> interact with the rest of the human race, you know. So I, I'm not, obviously conditioning matters, you know, there's no question about that. But we're multifaceted beings and my impression based upon uh, where I am on the path at this point in life, based upon nothing other than personal experiences, that kids, grown-ups, adolescents, uh, it's a small fraction that are really sensitive, and those are the people who can be reached. Yeah, that's uh, that's beautiful. It makes a lot of sense. And I definitely, like you said, conditioning's a thing, but after having two kids, I'm like, yeah, they're, the whole acorn metaphor makes a lot of sense to me. Like the whole person's in there when it comes out and they are who they are. And like, you can kind of guide a little bit. I'm at the point now where I'm like, maybe I get 5% or something that I can right, kind of push right. the pool, like, like help a little bit here. But for the most right. part, I That's do right. think we come out like who we are. So that makes a lot of sense. And it's funny. I go back and forth on that, Mitch, because people ask me a lot. <laughs> 
Mm. I'm lucky enough to be a visual artist for a living. And people ask me a lot. They're like, oh, I wish I could do what you do. Or they, I wish I could be an artist like you. And my, my like knee jerk reaction is to always say, you can, anybody can, anybody can draw, anybody can be a creative because even though in my like brain, I'm like, no, not anybody can do that in my like heart. I'm like, everybody should try because anybody that picks up a pencil and puts something on paper is going to feel better about themselves in a one way or another. I think that like living creatively is very important. But yeah, you're right. It is the type of thing where it's not that everyone's going to be a um, visual artist, a professional artist or a master of the craft they choose. It's just that like there's certain things that are meant for certain people along the way. And that's very, uh, that brings me kind of back to the book a little bit and two things that I wanted to ask you about, because there's a lot of threads that I picked up on, like, and that's one of the huge benefits I think of having a book like this is having this whole timeline and the way that you flow from one time period to another and one chapter to another makes these really interesting juxtapositions and kind of pulls out threads and uh, patterns throughout these things right and one of the big ones for me was time like the interaction that these people and that uh, time the role that time plays in the occult throughout history was fascinating to me what is your take on the time element of all of this at this point well i i was trying to come up with a working definition of the foundational belief of occultism of the nature of spirituality i refer to spirituality as extra physicality you know it's that simple and the question is, do we have elements within our existence, within our psyches, that function outside of the five sensory linear feeling world that is so overwhelmingly persuasive in day-to-day -day life? And the gambit of all religion is that there exists another facet of life that's not visible, accessible in the ways that 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 physicalist existence is to us. Every religion, every spirituality, every occult modality has that in common. And I believe there's verity to that. I absolutely believe there's verity to that. And we in the 21st century are the recipients of glimpses of that through the sciences, uh, as well as through testimony and personal experience. Um, so, quantum mechanics, quantum theory have pointed us towards a perceptually based reality, a reality in which the interaction between observer and object is fundamental to what reality is going to appear. Uh, academic psychical research, ESP research, has brought us a little bit further down that same lane. We, we have statistical evidence as replicable and as bulletproof as the best we've got in any field for some extra physical capacity of thought, some transfer of information that surpasses the five senses. And it's one of the reasons why I dedicate a whole chapter to that in the book called Science of the Supernatural. Um, we have other insights, like in the field of neuroplasticity, that show us that there are interactions between what we call thought, which we can't even fully identify or define, and the cellular makeup of the body, in particular, uh, the nature of, of our brain matter and neural pathways through which electrical impulses travel in the brain. So we're at this interesting moment in history where we've got all this religious testimony from millennia, we have personal experiences that can be drawn upon, which I take very seriously. And we have uh, what might be called empirical data that affirms these things. So it's a worthy gambit that there is an extra physical, uh, maybe interdimensional uh, nature uh, to reality that isn't bound by linear time, that that perhaps is simultaneous in nature, is infinite in nature, and is as real as the floorboards beneath our feet, but is not experienced commonly uh, by us as individual actors, except maybe in moments of extreme sensitivity or insight or breakthrough, or there may be some unique people who 
experience a little bit more than that. We live under physical parameters. Uh, these are well-known physical parameters. We live under experiences of mass, experiences of mortality. All these things are as real as the breath, as, as the breath we draw. And, 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 and yet it's not all there is. It's not all there is. So when we speak in terms of synchronicities or ESP or uh, divination or um, maybe some astrological connection between the individual and the cosmos, these are not just these far out superstitious questions. These are popular expressions of insights that people have gleaned across millennia that are becoming not less validated in a digitized age, but more and more validated. And I think that the, the, the best minds among us recognize that. And so the question of whether or how what is typically called a cult or maybe other mystical variants is converging with this material is for me a very hot question right now. I'm interested in the convergence of conversation between students of the occult and people who are interested in the UFO thesis. I'm interested in conversations between informed students of metaphysics and, and students of um, quantum physics. These are real questions. They're not new age bromides or things that can just be waved away as, you know, he, here go the, 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 the woo-woo people imagining, again, that that's something called science, a term we use with almost religiosity, is at the back of their cherished ideas. No, it's actually much more than that. Um, yes. We can't avoid questions that surpass uh, the physical today. To avoid them would be like going through life with one eye closed. So uh, when I speak in terms of time, I'm interested in the question of whether there exist other intersections of time that we may catch glimpses of. We use terms like synchronicity or ESP or intuition or whatever. Um, and these are popular terms used by just day-to-day -day individuals. But we also have data emergent from uh, decades of study, juried replicable data in some of the fields I've referenced that also point in that direction. So it's a very exciting time for a person to be searching through, sorting among these ideas how crazy is it how popular the word synchronicity is these days like have you have you noticed that in your time like these words that become kind of like you know my mom or my sister now use it where like five even five years ago i feel like my parents would look at me like i'm crazy if i said i had this wild synchronicity and you know told them a story but it's interesting the the cultural weirdening that's happening is that that confluence <laughs> of conversations is very very interesting to me um but by the way just apropos of that if you look for people using the word channel you'll find that everywhere too and you know it shows up trump uses it obama uses it you know it gets used everywhere i'm channeling this i'm channeling that and it's like that's thank you new so agers true. you know so. that's one of my favorite parts i didn't know that edgar casey was the one who coined channeling as a term yeah. in the spiritual i learned that from the book uh and that was beautiful i love Edgar Casey, I love that he's from Hopkinsville, which has my favorite cryptid encounter, the Hopkinsville Goblins, which is where the oh, term... Oh, I don't know about that. Oh, <laughs> you would love it, Mitch. You know the term Little Green Men that was very popular for aliens and stuff? That sure. comes from the Hopkinsville, Hopkinsville Goblin encounter back no uh, in the, the Sutton Ranch. Yeah, it was essentially a sober house of people that lived in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky, Hopkinsville, Kentucky, which is the birthplace of Edgar Casey, which is such a beautiful connection. Um, they see these UFOs that are emitting rainbow exhaust in the sky and they see them land, right? They get super scared. They run into the house and these little green, actually the Suttons described them as gray, but the newspapers that covered it said they were green because they thought it was a more like out of this world. Like it, it made the alien connection more and whatnot. So again, just like flying saucer, these terms come from a misrepresentation of the media. Like th these were not the way the experiencers described these things, which is always, always fascinating to me. But essentially they, their house gets attacked by these little gray goblins that come out of these flying saucers with rainbow exhaust. They shoot them with rifles. The bullets bounce off and 
it sounds like they're bouncing off tin and they essentially attack this house for a couple hours go away they go to the police and they report the whole thing they're taken very seriously because they're very well respected in the community and the police come out to the house they do a whole investigation and everything it's a beautiful story with way wow. more than just wow. that and I, I love those connections that that's the town that Edgar Casey comes from. But I had never I, I, heard of that before, and what a remarkable connection. Wow. Right. It's it's super fun. I, I come at this stuff from a mix of, like, cryptid, paranormal, weird stories and fascinations with the occult and stuff. And the inner uh, the intertwining of the two is always my favorite. I mean, Loch Ness is a great example of mm -hmm. how, you know, Crowley had the house on wow. Loch Ness and did the whole – and then you have the monster. And then I don't <sighs> know if you're familiar with Doc Shields at all, but he's one yeah. of my favorite. He's a self-proclaimed wizard who could essentially channel and manifest the Loch Ness monster and would take pictures that he admittedly hoaxed. He would say, I made these pictures and I took hoax pictures. But in between the hoax pictures, the real thing came and the hoaxing <laughs> was part of the ritual. And I think that's, that's beautiful. Funny. And yeah, that kind of yeah. gets it. Actually, I kind of wanted to ask you about that in regards to channeling. I love that you use this transition in the channeling section of the book. It goes from there to talking about the Ouija board and how that was this giant, you know, channeling thing that really was a pop cultural sensation to the point where Norman Rockwell is depicting the, the Ouija board and everything. I, I, I love that. And I think that there's something really important when these weird ideas or rituals make that jump. They go from just like the seances of spiritualism that hoaxing is a part of that stuff. And I think that's important. I think that's part of what makes it special. I think these weird things like to pop up where it's easy to be like, oh, that's just a hoax. But that almost makes it more likely to be real or for real stuff to occur in certain ways. And I know that probably like goes <laughs> against a lot of the scientific part of, of what we've been talking about and everything. But I think that gets to some of the things I've heard you speak of with like Dr. Jeffrey Kripal and him saying mm -hmm. that like these things can't be studied in a lab or can't be studied in the current systems. And I it's love that you bring those things up because the um, dichotomy of those two things I think is really special and I think that both sides are needed and valid and the way that you, you've spoken about it and the way that people like Dr. Jeffrey Kripe will speak about it but um, I love how you use that kind of transition to the pop culture phenomenon of the Ouija board and did you find other things like that studying where it was this very occult underground idea that makes its way to this giant cultural sensation and kind of changes the way people use terms like channeling and stuff like that well there's so much uh, it's funny we use the term hermetically sealed today and that's a term <laughs> from alchemy referencing hermes and um a lot of terms like that creep into our language i was in a i don't know if uh, in delaware they have the cvs pharmacy mm -hmm. chain but yep. cvs very big here in new york um and they had a, a cosmetics display and uh, the display said something to the effect of mysterious and mesmerizing, of course, referencing <laughs> Franz Anton Mesmer, the occult healer. So we'll catch ourselves using terms like mesmerize, hermetic, channel, synchronicity, and so forth. Uh, there's probably any number of others that emerge from occult tradition. Um, and, of course, it has changed the, the occult, outsider spirituality, esoteric spirituality, has changed the culture in such dramatic ways. Um, the positive mind tradition, which I devote a chapter to in the book, is one where people uh, rarely look uh, for occult influence because it seems so grandmotherly. Uh, the whole think positive thing seems like such a, a kind of um, very tame, domesticated, almost wearyingly familiar idea, but it didn't exist until maybe 150 years ago. Sure, you could find references, as you can find references to nearly anything under the sun in different uh, literary expressions or, or religious expressions, but the notion that thought determines outcome on some greater or lesser level, whether psychological or metaphysical, however you want to divide it up, um, is a concept that really entered popular consciousness about 150 years ago. If somebody had lost their farm in a flood and you said, well, think positive, uh, no, they would look at you like you're out of your mind. And, and in such cases, I wouldn't recommend saying that to somebody today who suffered a loss, but we do abide <laughs> the notion that thoughts are causative. And I think most people, most everyday people from just about every walk of life and background, uh, certainly who I've met, agrees with that statement to a greater or lesser extent. Um, 
you might find some people on Twitter who get very angry at that. But in terms of your comings and goings in life, for the most part, uh, uh, many Westerners, especially Americans, are prepared to agree with the idea that uh, thoughts to some greater or lesser degree, whether spiritual, psychological, or some mixture, are determinative. That's a very occult <laughs> idea that really grew out of the experience of mesmerism in the late 1700s when the Western public didn't have concepts or popular terms for a subconscious mind or a subliminal mind. Again, these ideas that we think have always been with us are sometimes a great deal more recent than we suspect. It wasn't until the 1890s that William James and F.W.H. Myers, before Freud, began to make references to a subliminal or subconscious mind. We didn't have such concepts um, publicly, popularly, at the ready before then. And so here's Mesmer placing people into mesmeric trances, uh, later called hypnotic trances. And he's manipulating something called their animal magnetism. And his next generation of students thought, well, you know, maybe the master is wrong about this animal magnetism thing. But maybe there's something else going on. Maybe there's some aspect of mind that we don't see. And maybe through these trances, the master is reaching this quality of mind. That's what's causing the cures. That really began, that nascent search, that struggle to figure out what was going on, what is happening. We're observing results. We're not so sure about this animal magnetism thing, but we're observing results. So what's happening? That began some of the earliest conversations in the West about the subconscious mind or the unconscious mind. And it began in occult territory. And it's very important for us to note that if we're going to understand who we are, where we come from, what we're about. There's such a tremendous series of connections between stuff that we take for granted in contemporary life today notions, concepts that we use every day, and subconscious mind is certainly one of them, and how these things had their earliest beginnings among occult experimenters. It, 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 demarked, it, it dots so many areas of life. The, the, as I was saying with Madame Blavatsky, the fingerprints are everywhere, just everywhere. Uh, I'm constantly astonished to discover those tendrils of connection. Yeah, no, that's amazing and makes so much sense. I, I have like so many other things I want to ask you and we're about 10 minutes away from our hour. So I'm <laughs> going to kind of, the two things that I want to um, kind of circle back on or finish with is one, I love how you wrapped up the book talking about the UFOs and the current state of the paranormal and, and the redefining or putting um, more emphasis on things like whether it's UFOs or anomalous experiences or cryptid experiences or time slips and these things. And the way that that is converging with all of these other kind of, I guess, this global weirdening that we've been talking about and the importance. And I love that you use Robert Anton Wilson as the transition to that part almost. Like uh, he's one of my favorite figures that mm -hmm. is in my opinion, so influential on all paranormal ufology, every, but doesn't get talked about nearly enough as far as his, his fingerprints, like you were just saying, uh, that are all over the weird and the, and, the, and the world. Could you talk a little bit about why you chose to use that as the transition to that section and, and what you think, maybe wrap up uh, our conversation here with why you think that is an important place to end this beautiful book that you wrote that covers so many uh, amazing topics. Like it was very interesting and uh, meaningful to me that you wrapped it up there. Oh, I appreciate that very much. Um, I've always admired Wilson because he knew how to use the word maybe. And that was, to me, the man's greatness. We get cemented into these positions of absolutism. And Wilson was perfectly willing to acknowledge that something could occur, but maybe not occur again. Something could be true, but not be altogether true. Uh, and, and we didn't need to get into these defensive postures about what is and isn't absolutely real and absolutely factual and the manner in which facts and inquiry don't behave and these things are moving targets. And uh, I think Wilson was perhaps one of the very few people who emerged from the culture of esoterica, search, counterculture, who didn't just create a new church. 
and 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 he he kept things open in such a way that he could almost i mean one could almost be frustrated that you know you want wilson to just plant his flag somewhere but his refusal to plant his flag somewhere is what was so beautiful about him and frankly i find the same thing in the work of william burroughs um men of different character uh wilson was probably (laughs) easier to get along with than, than burroughs but burroughs too had this beautiful quality about him as an artist. I have no idea what he was like as a person, but as an artist of, of saying, maybe, maybe we don't really know. And of feeling certainty that there's an extra physical quality to life that winks at us that we can sometimes access, but it's not just going to unfold in availability and not getting uh, offended or angry or pissed off. If somebody doesn't hold exactly the same point of view, we tend to, we tend to demonstrate more hostility to people who almost agree with us than we do to people who are diametrically opposed. That I was going to be one of my questions for you, not to interrupt you, too, but when, when you brought up Blavatsky, and I always want to ask this to people, I know people get a lot of pushback about talking about people like Madame Blavatsky. And do you still experience pushback about talking about figures like that? And does it come from people within in the esoteric community or from outside of the esoteric community? Oh, that's a fascinating question. Um, I, I, I would say when I experience hostility or pushback in reference to Madame Blavatsky, it usually comes outside and it comes from people who may be very thoughtful and very sensitive in a whole wide range of ways, but they have been educated to dismiss figures like that. If they've even heard the name, uh, she's a charlatan, she's a fake, she's a fraud, she's a carnival performer. You know, for example, um, there's a journalist named Joseph Lellyveld, very good man, used to be the executive editor at the New York Times. Um, for a long time, he was a reporter from South Africa. Um, he wrote a biography of Gandhi, and he's very dismissive of Madame Blavatsky in the biography. And I, I thought to myself, you know, this subject matter to a man like that a distinguished journalist, is boring. Uh, He sees nothing to look at. He's been educated to believe that Blavatsky was nonsensical. And so the very fact that Gandhi, as I was referencing earlier in articles, interviews, and all the citations are in the book because I want people to have these citations so that they they can avail themselves of this material if they feel like it and see how absolutely literal these and plain and expository these references are and how they could have written been written out of uh, the Western storyline is a chapter in itself. But Lelyveld, who's surely aware of this stuff, nonetheless totally dismisses Blavatsky in the book as if there's not even a, a, a drop of water there for a parched mouth, not even a drop of water. And that is a cultural affinity. And a lot of what makes it into opinion-shaping reference sources rests upon cultural affinity. And so it's profoundly difficult for people who are raised uh, within that framework. They do lots of good things and they accomplish lots of good things, but that framework doesn't educate you how to look outside of it because the defining feature of that framework is a belief in its own rationality. And yeah. rationality, um, by its very nature, doesn't encourage you to look outside of its parameters. There's a word for that, and that's irrationality, and that's everything that's <laughs> bad. So <clears throat> we educate people that not only um, are certain reference points correct within modernity, but looking outside those reference points is exactly the recipe to soft-headedness, fuzzy thinking. We have generations of intellectuals who have been educated to do all kinds of good things, but never to look outside of the prevailing cultural assumptions. And this is probably basic to human nature, and you find it everywhere. Um, This is just the window that I happen to have my nose pressed up against. So I'm (laughs) able to witness it. And they just don't know. You know, they they just simply don't know. I've sat on panels with people, very distinguished people, writers, journalists, critics, 
and the topic of ESP research will come up and they'll say, oh, it's all just a bunch of bullshit. And I, I, I recognize the sincerity of their point of view and that's what you get when you um, are brought up within this framework. These things are thought to be nonsense and if you go searching online uh, to verify it, your prejudice will be verified because that will be echoed in Wikipedia and the first five uh, references that come up on Google. Um, totally. But it just happens to be wrong, and so yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's provably wrong by the same standards that get you into that thinking to begin with. So in private, I'll have discussions with people who are from the mainstream cultural milieu, and they'll agree with me. And then when they go back to whatever their a peer group is, they will disagree because the peer group requires that as a fee of entry. So, and it's not different anywhere else. I mean, I'm no, not I say, you know, lamenting, oh, poor me, I live in the modern West, isn't life difficult? Life is, is wonderful in a lot of ways, and I'm lucky to be here. But that's one of the wrinkles of our culture. There are cultural affinities, and certain topics or ideas are, um, in, a, in a poorly examined, poorly scrutinized way, regarded as outside the boundaries of the, the, the dominant ways of thought. And that has not changed since the uh, close of the Renaissance. And that's not going to change anytime soon. Um, that's why, as we began by discussing occultism, among other things, is a perennially outsider philosophy. Yeah. That's, Even that's if it works. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we got there because I feel like every – even the more esoteric or like the weird or in the paranormal podcast I listen to when figures like Blavatsky come up, there's this like hedging that everybody does before talking about her, even when you're, you know, somebody that's researched that I'm like, and I guess that's a byproduct of that cultural, you know, uh, structure like that is people have to hedge before talking about her just so that they're, you know, taken somewhat seriously or not just uh, yeah, muted, uh, automatically. You're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, to the extent that, that, dismissing um, figures like Blavatsky or dismissing um, certain supernatural subject matter, let's say, in the same way that that's a fee of entry to mainstream letters, that attitude lingers even within the counterculture. Yeah. Um, so people just need to sort of take a breath. And uh, there's a humility in Robert Anton Wilson. You know, he's funny, he's impish, he's mischievous, but there's also a humility. And that is the mark of a very rare man. You are absolutely right. And yeah, I completely agree. The more that we can adopt that flexible thinking that he spoke of so highly, maintain agnosticism at all regards. And I mean, even I've always loved his idea of E prime and you taking out isms and we're only using words that are if, or like, you know, the sky isn't blue, the sky appears blue. And that's exactly. such a more accurate way of saying it. Cause the sky is actually not blue. We just see it that way. And when you use that like mix of science and philosophy and all, all of it kind of comes together. That's where I think that real that real beauty is, which is why I love what you do and how you present it, and that you're out there making the stuff you make. So let, I we just hit the hour mark. I want to be respectful of your time here, Mitch. I know you're super busy. <laughs> uh, are you are you already on to the next writing project now that believe, you have? Believe this it or not, I I am. Yes, <laughs> I say that with almost shame. <laughs> I have uh, I have a lot of things cooking. Um, I have a forthcoming book called Happy Warriors, which is about some of the progenitors of the positive mind tradition. I have Ooh. a forthcoming book called Practical Magic, which is uh, an expository book on um, magical methods that I think have validity and are worth exploring. Uh, lots of other things besides. So uh, no shortage of uh, stuff on the calendar. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to check it all out. And yeah, th thank you so much for doing this. And again, thank you for doing everything you do. It's really meaningful. The first conversation we had, I've gotten more feedback from that conversation in ways that means a lot to me than I could ever, uh, ever express. So thank you for doing this and Back at you. being you. <laughs> Back at you. Thank, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Always love talking to you. Thank you. Oh, anytime. Is there anything you want to direct people to or let them know where to find the new book and everything well, else that you got going on? Thank you. Yeah, the new book is Modern Occultism. Uh, it's going to be out September 19th. It'll be in physical book format, digital format, audio format. Um, it's It can be pre-ordered now wherever it is that you buy your books. 
And um, I'm very proud of it. And I, I, I appreciate people's support of it. It's beautiful. It's got that perfect combination of informational, but it's poetic. It has that practical poetry to it that I think is a real uh, hallmark of your work. So people are really going to love this, I think, Mitch. Um, but yeah, I thank can't you, wait man. to talk again. Enjoy the rest of the day. I'll talk Likewise. to you soon. Okay. Thank Take you care. so much. Really appreciate it. <laughs>